everybody, it's Michael, and welcome back to episode 33 of the Sunset Single Player Podcast. Thanks so much for coming back this week and every week. I really appreciate everyone out there that's coming here to listen to me talk about video games. And lately, in terms of what I've been playing, I do want to touch on what I've been spending my time with lately, and then we'll get into the news a little bit later in the episode. But I've been playing a lot of the Control Ultimate Edition on PS5, and I've been going pretty hard on it. I actually did just beat the game in about eight or nine hours. I think my first playthrough back on the PS4 took me probably about at least 12, maybe 12 to 15. But now that I knew what I was doing this time around and understood some of the puzzle solutions, especially in the Ocean View Motel, it's kind of a reoccurring section of the game. I understood how to navigate those puzzles and a couple other puzzles throughout the game. And I kind of just breezed through the story to get to the DLC. And I did also beat the first DLC pack, which is called the Foundation. So now I have the option of doing the second DLC pack, which is AWE which I think I'm going to get into this week, and then also maybe go for the Platinum on PS5. So I did already Platinum the game on PS4. I think the game came out in like August of 2019, and I Platinumed it in November. And I might get the double Platinum for this one. I might double dip and do it again on PS5, just because the game is so satisfying from a combat perspective with the telekinesis and the third-person shooting and the levitation. I do think that Remedy did a really, really good job with this game. And now it's definitely much improved on the ps5 with great performance and all the dlc included for playstation plus members for free which is really really awesome and for those of you that don't know much about the game control like i mentioned is made by remedy the studio from finland you might know behind alan wake and quantum break their two previous games and i never did get around to playing alan wake but it was on xbox 360 i never owned an xbox 360 it is interesting though because the second dlc pack for control which i'm about to get into this week called AWE actually ties it together with Alan Wake. So it sounds like Alan Wake and Control occur in the same universe, which is interesting. So I'll definitely have to dig deeper into that and see if I can draw any comparisons there. But I'm sure that that DLC is probably better for someone that has played Alan Wake. So I'm sure I'll be missing some references or tie-ins to Alan Wake that I won't understand, but I would have if I did play the game. In terms of the Foundation DLC for Control, I did beat it in about three hours, so the first DLC pack was pretty short. I think there's two or three more side missions specific to the Foundation I could do, but the story alone, just main pathing the story of the DLC was three hours, and it was really good with a really satisfying final mission. I do think that the Foundation DLC was really well done. It didn't really add anything new that wasn't in the base game besides some missions and kind of a revisiting of a certain character, but I I do think that it was just more of control, which is never a bad thing. And the reason I play this game is because of the really fast and fun and addicting third person shooting and telekinesis centered gameplay. It really is a little bit like infamous with the gun. So if you like the infamous games, I really do recommend giving control a shot. And it really is just improved with the shooting. In my opinion, I do think they really got third person shooting down really, really well in this game. Back to the platinum trophy discussion. I don't know if I'll be going for the platinum on this again. There are some annoying board countermeasure and bureau alert missions to do that are kind of repetitive and I didn't really focus on them in my first playthrough on PS5 well my second playthrough but my first run on the PS5 version of the Ultimate Edition so I don't know if I'll be going for the Platinum again but if I find that not many games are holding my attention I may double dip and go for it on this one 
because it's not a hard platinum and it's not very long either. You really just have to beat the game, defeat all of the optional side bosses that are really fun and I recommend you should do them even if you don't care about trophies. I do think some of the best moments in the game come from some of the more optional side bosses and I do have some ideas for some more video content coming to the channel very, very soon, hopefully in the next couple days, all about control and some of these side bosses that you guys can look forward to. But I do think the side content and the side bosses are well worth your time and then to get the platinum, you just have to do some side missions and do the bureau alerts, the board countermeasures, which are just additional side missions basically, and pretty much just play the game through to 100%. And it's really not that big of a game. So it's definitely a doable platinum. I wasn't really frustrated with it in any sense when I got it on the PS4. And I do want to reiterate and beat this drum that it's a fantastic value this package being on PS Plus. So not only are you getting the game, but you're also getting both DLC packs. And the first DLC pack is really good. I'm excited to do the second one. The DLC probably adds about six hours total. I would guess three hours for each DLC pack to the already 10 to 12 hour game if it's your first time through. Like I said, I got through in about eight or nine, but that was because I knew what to do having already played the game. But for first time players, It'll probably take you about 10 to 12 hours to beat the game and then six more for the DLC and then maybe eight to 10 more for the platinum. So definitely getting your money's worth, but not too long of a game here. And it can be as long or short as you want. If you just want to blitz through the story, you can do that or you can spend more time with it really is just up to you. And I do think that the gameplay really, really shines in this one, especially on the PS5. And I do recommend that even if you have a PlayStation Plus subscription, I recommend that you add it to your library if you own a PS4 but don't have a PS5 yet. And then once you get a PS5, you can get a free upgrade and it will still be in your library on the PS5 once you're able to secure one. So definitely add it to your library. I would recommend waiting though, because the game is just way, way much improved on the PS5. And this is coming from someone that has beat it on PS4. The game did not run well on PS4. There were constant frame drops. It didn't run at a smooth 30 frames. It definitely dropped below 30 frames. There were some bugs and technical hiccups that really brought down the initial experience for me. But on PS5, I'm happy to say that it runs super smoothly at 60 frames per second in the performance mode. And if you don't care as much about frame rate, you can run the ray tracing mode at 30 frames per second. But for a game like Control, I really, really do recommend the frame rate boost and the performance mode boost. It is just a better experience all around. I really do recommend that the performance mode on PS5 is where you wait to play this game. And again, good luck to all of you guys trying to secure PS5. It might be a little bit frustrating, but I really hope you guys can get your hands on one soon. Hopefully they become more readily available. I know major retailers are still doing drops. There's certain Twitter accounts you can follow to get updates on drops, which I do recommend. That's how I was able to know that Target was dropping the first night for mine. So definitely keep a look out for drops from major retailers and I'm sure that you guys will be able to get the console hopefully very very soon and I have to mention if you guys liked Miles Morales or if you like Spider-Man the first game or Miles Morales or the infamous games I really do think control will be right up your alley just in terms of the speed of the combat just the force throwing of projectiles it's really really cool and really does remind me of infamous and Spider-Man a bit and it's a shame that not very many people will play Control. I really am a big fan of it. I do think it's a really underrated game and one of the very best games that came out in 2019. I mean, if they released this polished PlayStation 5 version in 2019, it would definitely be in the running for my game of the year. But like I said, the technical shortcomings and the frame rate dips definitely brought it down a bit. And the story is 
pretty confusing. There's a ton of writing and written correspondence in the game that, while it is really cool they spent the time to go into it on such a deep level, it does confuse the story a bit. And I should say, in Control, you play as Jesse Faden, who is a sister to Dylan Faden. And when they were younger in their town of Ordinary, there was an event that basically caused some supernatural elements to invade their life through a slide projector. And this is where the story gets a little bit confusing. There's basically a whole supernatural element to the world that only Jesse and Dylan and a few other people involved can really see and is made apparent to them. And the Federal Bureau of Control is where Jesse goes to start the game out in search of her brother Dylan, who's being held there. Throughout the game, you pretty much learn about the research that's being done on these supernatural elements and some problems and violence that has invaded the Federal Bureau of Control, the secret government entity that is tasked with studying supernatural elements. And it's really, really interesting, but the story does get confusing at times. And it is bogged down by a lot of writing that instead of clearing things up, kind of just makes you even more confused at least that's the way i felt about it and like alan wake control is definitely a cult classic hit i know major groups of people that loved alan wake and are really steeped in the lore of the game and the story and understanding all the crazy confusing stuff that went on in the story in that game and control is definitely the same i do think that this game if not already is set up to be a cult classic and i'm really glad that it's been re-released on the playstation 5 and playstation 4 through ps plus to give the game some more recognition and attention that I really truly do think it deserves. So again, look forward to my video content on Control coming soon. I imagine I'll do at least two or three Control videos and I have a lot of the gameplay recorded. I just need to take the time to put them together and upload them to the YouTube channel. And again, I really appreciate anyone out there that has enjoyed the videos and please just leave a thumbs up on the videos you enjoy and consider subscribing to the channel if you haven't already for a lot more PlayStation 5-centric video content coming soon. And before we get into the news for the week, I also do want to give you guys an update on Blue Fire. I know I said that I was looking forward to playing Blue Fire on the Switch and getting a capture card and putting up my gameplay of Blue Fire on YouTube. But after the game came out, I was reading some reviews and I found that the load times and performance weren't the best on the Switch. And it seems like the game is actually running better on PC at this point in time. So I think what I'm going to do is is wait for the PlayStation release and it does sound like it's a pretty short window of timed console exclusivity. So while the game is out on PC and Switch now, I expect that we'll be seeing it on PlayStation and Xbox consoles hopefully in March. I'm hoping it's just like a one month timed exclusivity deal and that the game will come to PlayStation on March 4th. That's really what I'm hoping for. I'd also like to go for some of the trophies in the game and just enjoy it on PlayStation. I really do like the new controller and hopefully the game will benefit from some shorter loader times and better better frame rate and performance on PlayStation. So I am for now going to wait and get this game hopefully in just a few weeks time when it does come to PlayStation. But of course, I'll keep you guys updated on that when the time comes. Even though the game has gotten some mixed reviews, I'm still really excited to play it. It does look like a mix between Hollow Knight and Wind Waker and Mario platforming at times. At least that's what a lot of the reviews I've been reading have been about. And as someone who loves Mario games, Wind Waker from the Legend of Zelda franchise and Hollow Knight this is definitely a game that I want to check out. And I'm definitely excited to cover it for you guys and let you know once I get to it if it's worth your money and time as well. And at this point, there isn't too, too much to play anymore, guys, or at least from what's coming out. I know that Hitman 3 did drop in January on PS5, but Besides that, there's really not 
too too much out that I haven't already played that I'm interested in. I know that Immortals Phoenix Rising game was received pretty well. So besides that and Hitman 3, there's not too much out there I'd want to play at this moment in time. Besides, of course, Cyberpunk 2077. But like I've mentioned, I don't want to sound like too much of a broken record. I'm not going to be playing that one until much further down the line once the update is ready. But it really is kind of dead in the first quarter this year in terms of new releases. I mean, we will be getting Kenna Bridge of Spirits in March, hopefully. I'm really excited for that game. But we did find out that a major game was actually delayed until later than when we thought we were going to be getting it. And that does bring us right into number one of the news of the week. So number one for the week is that the Mass Effect Legendary Edition is scheduled to release on May 14th. A few weeks back, I did report that there were rumors circling around that the game would actually come on March 12th. But now we know that isn't the case, and it's now scheduled to come about two months later exactly on May 14th. And EA and Bioware did announce this themselves and I am really really excited for this I've never played a Mass Effect game and I heard they revamped the visuals and the gameplay as well in Mass Effect 1 which apparently it really needed a lot of people said that the gameplay in the first Mass Effect did not hold up well and a lot of people were even saying that you can skip the first game and just go right into two but for me I'd like to get the complete character and story perspectives I'd Definitely wouldn't want to skip the first game. I want to get the story set straight for me so that I'm not confused if I just jumped into the second game and wouldn't even know what characters they were talking about or who was who. I really do think it's important to start at the beginning of a very story-focused RPG like this instead of just jumping in with the second game. Whereas I feel like for people out there that haven't played the Uncharted games, I feel like for as good as Uncharted 1 was, and I do think you should play Drake's Fortune, I do think that if you wanted to skip Drake's Fortune and just start with 2, you could... I mean, you'd miss out on a little bit with like Drake and Elena's relationship, but I still think you could get away with starting with Uncharted 2, whereas I feel like the Mass Effect games that are really story and character heavy, from what I've heard at least, and again, I haven't played these games yet, but just from what I've read and heard about the games, I do think that personally I want to start with the first game, and I don't think I'll play them like back to back to back and just play Mass Effect for like two months straight. I do think that I'm probably going to chip away at the collection throughout the year 2021, maybe start with Mass Effect 1 and give it a little break before I get into the second game after beating the first game. But we'll just have to see how engaged I am with the series overall. Like maybe I'll get a sudden desire and urge to play number two right after number one. We'll just have to wait and see. But where it gets interesting is that PCGamer.com did report that the Mass Effect Legendary Edition will come with 40 packs of DLC when split between the first three games. But the interesting thing is it won't include the Pinnacle Station DLC, which I believe was a DLC pack from the first game because the code associated with the Pinnacle Station DLC was actually lost in the the remastering process and apparently it would take them like six months to make the pinnacle station dlc from scratch they made the decision just to scratch this piece of dlc which i don't really blame them at all that would be a ton of extra work to go in and remake essentially at this point since they don't have the code and they're not just remastering the visuals and the gameplay on top of the existing code they would really have to start from scratch and make brand new code and just remake the entire dlc so i really don't blame them for not wanting to do this and i'm not sure if the pinnacle station was a dlc pack that was really well received or loved by many people i'm just not sure on that front but it's definitely impressive that this package is coming with so many hours of content i mean you're getting not only the three games but also 40 dlc packs 
So I feel like this game is going to keep people busy for a long, long time. And May 14th, like I mentioned last week, May is just a super busy time for games now. So starting out on April 30th, which is basically May 1st, last day of April, we get Returnal. And then a week later, roughly May 7th or May 8th, I'd have to check we get Resident Evil 8 Village, and then later we get, by a week, we get the Mass Effect Legendary Edition on May 14th, and then we get Deathloop on May 21st or 23rd, and then Biomutant is May 26th, I believe. So four or five really high quality games in a one month span, which is awesome, but also a little bit disappointing. It would have been nice to have some more of these titles ready to go in January and February, and maybe even March, so that we weren't awaiting them and they didn't all hit the same time. But I'm sure that COVID definitely did impact negatively some of these development cycles. So it makes sense that some of these games that maybe initially were planned for the first quarter of this year have been pushed to later on in the year, May more specifically. Number two, MLB The Show 21 is coming to both PlayStation and Xbox consoles on April 20th. And I know we briefly touched on this last week because it was in the process of being leaked and it was confirmed that the cover athlete for the game is Fernando Tatis Jr., the shortstop for the San Diego Padres. And the main game is scheduled to come on April 20th, but we also learned that there's a Jackie Robinson Collector's Edition that's coming out as well four days early, so on April 16th you can enjoy it. And Sony did release an update on the game, and this was on the PlayStation blog, and Sony said that the game would be coming to Xbox for the very first time, but at this point it doesn't seem that the show 21 will be coming to Switch or PC. So it sounds like for this year, it's just going to be PlayStation and Xbox. And I know we probably touched on this in the past, but just to reiterate, if anyone missed it, Sony San Diego is a first party Sony owned studio that's responsible for MLB The Show. Up until this year, all these MLB The Show games have been PlayStation exclusive. So they've only been on PlayStation consoles, including PS Vita. But now that the agreement was up with the MLB, the MLB is essentially requiring Sony San Diego to publish these games elsewhere because the MLB doesn't want these restrictions that allow games to only be played on one platform. They really want it to be accessible to everyone. And since MLB The Show is by far the best baseball simulation you can play, and that's no offense to more arcade style games like RBI Baseball, but if you're looking for a really realistic baseball simulation, MLB The Show is the franchise you want to be invested in and spend your time and money on. So I think it's great personally that it's coming to Xbox. And this is coming from me, who a lot of you probably know is more of a PlayStation centric guy. I do think that it's great that more people are going to get to experience this game. It's definitely a really high quality franchise. I used to love these games. I played MLB The Show 17 a lot. I did a season back in the day and now I might even dip back in. I'm a big baseball fan. I generally don't love to play baseball games I'd rather watch it on TV, no matter how good they are, but now that I have the PS5, I might want to see what a PlayStation 5 baseball video game could be, and I do think that it's set to run really, really beautifully on the new hardware, and I'm sure it'll look great on the new Xbox hardware as well. And just to get into it a little bit further, website TheVerge.com reported that the game will also contain cross-save between the PlayStation and Xbox versions of the game, which I do think is really cool. I mean, it would be expensive to purchase the game on both platforms, especially if you have next-gen consoles, because the next-gen versions of the game on PS5 and Xbox Series X and S are going for $70 a piece, but the game will be $60 
a piece on PS4 and Xbox One. So if you have like 150 bucks probably after tax laying around and you want to get that cross save action going on your PS5 and Xbox Series X or S, you can do that. So I do think that, well, it's not something that a lot of people will probably be engaging in. I do think it's nice that you have that option. And I don't think we've heard yet if there's going to be cross play, like online multiplayer cross play between the consoles. That would be really cool if it was. It'd be cool to play a nine inning game against one of your friends on Xbox on your PlayStation and vice versa. So we will just have to keep our eye out for that. I don't think they've said anything about that yet. And real quick, before we move on back to the special collector's edition version of the game. So there are three different separate collector's editions you can buy of the game with Jackie Robinson on the cover of all three. And I think it's cool. So these versions are more expensive. I don't have the exact prices in front of me now. I know one of them does go for over $100 though, and they include some extra perks and bonuses. And I'm sure that the PlayStation blog went into that more. You guys, if you're interested, can go check it out over there for more specific details. But I do think it's interesting that Sony and Sony San Diego decided to make the game come out four days earlier than the regular copies if you do get the collector's edition. And some people might think this sucks and that they're just trying to get that extra revenue from just the more expensive products. But I do think that it's cool. Like if you're if you're a really big fan and you want to celebrate Jackie Robinson or you want to celebrate the show this year, if you pay up, if you pay a little bit of a premium, you can get that early access, which I don't really have a problem with. I know that most of the copies sold will be on April 20th, or I should say associated with the standard edition of the game coming out on April 20th. But if you are really into MLB The Show and you do want to support Sony San Diego and their endeavors, I do think it's cool that you can get four-day early access if you do join the more expensive, I shouldn't say join, but if you do purchase the more expensive Jackie Robinson collector's edition. And if I do start a MLB The Show 21 season, I'll tell you guys right now, it's not going to be with the Pittsburgh Pirates because the Pirates did just trade away Josh Bell. He was our star first baseman to the Washington Nationals for prospects. And we're definitely in a complete 100% rebuild at this point. We are trading away our best players just to try to get some young talent to reinvigorate the organization. And this would be okay, but the way the Pirates have gone about it is just been really Really, really sad. So, for example, we lost Chris Archer again. So, we made a pretty bad trade, and I, I would even say a very bad trade a couple years ago. We traded Austin Meadows and Tyler Glass now, two really young star players, to the Tampa Bay Rays for Chris Archer. Pretty sure both of them were all stars in 2020, the 2020 season, especially, or maybe 2019. I know Tyler Glass now, one of the years, had an incredible ERA. He's a starting pitcher, and Austin Meadows is a really solid outfielder, just a great hitter. And they were doing really well for us, but we traded them away for Chris Archer. And now we got the sad news that we traded Chris Archer away again for essentially nothing. He went back to Tampa Bay and we didn't get anything in return. So basically we got Chris Archer for a season. He pitched poorly. He was hurt. And we gave away two of our best prospects and have nothing to show for it. So that's definitely the struggle of being a Pirates fan, guys. And then we did also trade Jamison Tyone to the Yankees for prospects. And he's a really, really solid starting pitcher, Jamison Tyone, but he was hurt. He did have two Tommy John surgeries, but he's going to do really, really well for New York. So that's the Pirates kind of philosophy, guys. We we get stars in and then we, we get rid of them for prospects and it's just a never ending process. And hopefully I see a Pirates World Series before I die, but I'm not super confident at it in this point in time. Number three, Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. The remake has been delayed indefinitely. So IGN.com reported that the Sands of Time Prince of Persia remake was delayed again from its previously scheduled date of this winter 
or I believe it was March, to an unspecified later date, so they didn't give us a date this time. And Ubisoft did announce that it was being delayed so that the extra development time would enable the team to deliver a remake that, quote, feels fresh while remaining faithful to the original, end quote. So my thoughts on this for Prince of Persia fans this is definitely a bummer. However, I still think it will be better in terms of a quality perspective because of this delay, but it's still disappointing for fans because they didn't even give a time range or an anticipated date. My guess would be that we'll be seeing this game in late summer or early fall. I feel like they probably need like four to six more months to polish it up. And I don't really play these games. I may have mentioned in a previous episode, I think I dabbled with the 2007, I want to say it was, Prince of Persia kind of reboot. And it was beautiful. I did like the art style that they were going for back on the PS3 where I played the game, but it didn't really do much for me. I never finished it. I think I just played it for like an hour or something, and it just wasn't really my type of game. But I know that the games were supposed to be of a really high quality in this franchise, some of them in the Prince of Persia franchise. So I definitely feel for fans out there that wanted to play this game, but are not going to be able to for a while. But again, we'll keep our eye on it. Hopefully it does still come this year and people can get their Prince of Persia fix at some point later this year. Number four. Quantic Dream, the French development studio that used to work in a second-party relationship to Sony with games like Heavy Rain and Detroit Become Human, is expanding into Canada, Montreal to be more specific, and they are opening a second office there. So IGN.com, they did have a really good article on this. I recommend you guys check it out if you're interested in learning more about Quantic Dream and kind of what happened with them and Sony. They don't go into specifics on that part. But before we get into this new announcement, I do want to preface this discussion by saying that Heavy Rain and Detroit Become Human are really good games. And if you guys haven't played them, I do really recommend both of them. I know that Heavy Rain was remastered for PS4 and Detroit Become Human is a native PS4 game that came out in 2018, whereas Heavy Rain came out to PS3 first in 2010 and then later came to PS4. At this point in time, if you're new to Quantic Dream and you've never played either game, I'd probably recommend Detroit Become Human over Heavy Rain just because it's more modern, the visuals are better, it's it's a more recent game. But with that being said, I don't think you guys should on Heavy Rain either. Heavy Rain was a really good narrative-driven, choice-based adventure game that I really think put Quantic Dream on the map, and I do think Sony was smart to contract out with them and and set up a second party relationship to get these games exclusively on Sony platforms. So Sony funded these games, Heavy Rain and Detroit Become Human. And because of that, they were second party exclusives that never came to Xbox. I know Detroit Become Human came to PC, I want to say. I'm not sure about Heavy Rain. I'll just look that up really quick just to make sure because I know that Quantic Dream is pretty friendly with PC. So yeah, Heavy Rain is on Steam. So that is available on PC if you guys don't have a PlayStation console. And then Detroit Become Human is also on Steam. So both games you can play on PC, which is great. I do really recommend both of them, especially if you're in the mood for something different. Like I know for me, at least I get sick of like big open world action games and even shooters I can get sick of. But These choice-based adventure games are games that at least I don't play very often, so whenever I can get kind of a triple-A one from Quantic Dream that has a really great story and just quality to it, I do think that it's a really good thing. So let's get into this announcement a little bit more. So Quantic Dream, like I mentioned, is expanding into Canada, and the second office is going to be in Montreal, 
So people in Montreal already speak French, most of them as their first language. So this makes a lot of sense to me. The communication issues will be minimal or non-existent. So last year, we also learned that Quantic Dream went independent and now plans to act as both a developer and a publisher, which is interesting. So we should not expect games to be coming exclusively to PlayStation platforms anymore. So that's really important to remember. They are going to be multi-platform now and come to Xbox consoles and continue to come to PC. I'm not sure about Nintendo yet. We'll just have to wait and see. But we learn in the IGN article that we shouldn't expect Quantic Dreams games to be quicker to release now, because even though they are expanding into this second office in Montreal, the studios will still work as one together, and they are collectively working on a new AAA unannounced title as well, which is really, really exciting. I'm excited to see this revealed. I really did enjoy Detroit, and I think that David Cage, the director at Quantic Dream, is really creative, and a lot of people don't like him in the industry. They think his games are pretentious. A lot of people, they kind of view him in a similar light to people like Hideo Kojima, but I'll say this about David Cage, and it's also how I feel about Kojima, and for as pretentious as you might think they are, at least they make good video games, and that's what I care about. I care about playing some good video games, so I don't really care if David Cage says something that an outlet views as controversial or if someone thinks his stories are pretentious and over the top. It just doesn't bother me as long as the end product is as good as Heavy Rain and Detroit Become Human have been in the past. David Cage also said in the IGN article that the challenge in making this new game is learning the ins and outs of the next-gen hardware, and there are more pipelines and new technologies to learn that he referenced definitely increases the challenge. And Cage said that they are tackling this challenge head-on by investing in R&D, and I do think they have about 60 additional R&D employees, it sounds like, and they also secured funding to compete with the best studios in the world, David Cage said. And this is interesting to me because before when they were in that second-party relationship to Sony, they would secure funding from Sony, and of course Sony is a really well-established, strong financial company, and I do want to mention this. I know I've mentioned it in the past, but I do own some Sony stock, and I will continue to report on them very fairly. I also own some Microsoft stock as well, but I've owned Microsoft shares for quite a while, and I will continue to report on these companies fairly, but I do just want to let you guys know to avoid any issues. But anyways, with that being said, it does sound like instead of securing funding from Sony, since they're not associated with Sony anymore or affiliated with Sony in a second party relationship anymore, ever since Detroit Become Human released, that was the last time they did secure funding and they didn't really go into how they secured this funding. I don't know if they got like a, a lower interest bank loan or if Quantic Dream just used internal funds and financed it independently. I'm not sure if there was an outside funding source to help prop this new game up. I'm sure that additional information might come out on that later. We're just going to have to wait and see. But Cage also said that a big reason they needed the funding was to focus in on sound design as well. They implemented a brand new sound studio in their offices, which is great. So I would expect the next Quantic Dream game to have incredible sound design. Really, really looking forward to that. And this is where it gets interesting. They also, and Cage said that another big reason they opened another office was to start publishing smaller games as a publisher in North America. So not only are they independently publishing their own game now, their own next big game, their AAA title, they're also going to act as a publisher to smaller development teams to publish smaller indie games in North America. And Montreal, they said, was a great location to get underway with that. So yeah, for that announcement, no more Quantic Dream games exclusive to PlayStation. And of course, the next Quantic Dream game will come to PlayStation. I'd be shocked if it didn't since they did say that they're working in a multi-platform capacity and they already have experience with PlayStation hardware. So I'd be really surprised if it didn't come to PS4 and or PS5, but I'm definitely excited to keep my eye on this and 
whenever we figure out what game that they're getting ready to release for us, I'll be the first to let you guys know. Number five, and this one doesn't do it as much for me, but maybe some of you guys out there will appreciate this. Number five is that there is a new Call of Duty game coming in either the fall or holiday of 2021. So Eurogamer did report that Activision will be releasing another Call of Duty title this holiday season in 2021. So Activision's CFO, Dennis Durkin, said that there will be another premium Call of Duty release in the fourth quarter this year to complement the already popular and seemingly thriving Call of Duty Warzone. So to me, this makes sense. I wonder if these games will ever end, honestly. Probably not because people keep buying them. As a lot of you know, Call of Duty is one of the very best-selling games every year on each and every platform it's available on. And as much as I think Call of Duty is oversaturated and they kind of just tweak what's already available, they're not really making new games, especially when you get to the multiplayer side of things. They're really just tweaking it. But I do have to admit the single-player campaigns are new and unique each time. But I do have to also admit that the new multiplayer on PS5 is really fun. So I played at my friend's places and it is a really good shooter. I do think Call of Duty has satisfying shooting mechanics. It's fun to play. It's just that I'm sick of them. Like I played a lot of Modern Warfare 2 and at this point I just don't really care about the series anymore. I'd rather see the team in Infinity War do something completely different, but unfortunately we just won't be getting that anytime soon because the demand for Call of Duty is just still so high and it really is the main game a lot of people play. Like it's crazy to me that people buy consoles just to play one game. They don't experience what else is out there, which is definitely something I can respect. I mean, like if you want to really get good and improve at a single game, I think it's cool that people spend the time and effort to do that. But I just feel like for me personally, I'd be missing out on so much if I just played one game in Call of Duty and I'd get frustrated. I, I wouldn't want to get too involved in the multiplayer for fear of missing out on so many other great games that come out each year. And this is interesting also because EA also confirmed prior that there is going to be a new AAA Battlefield game coming this holiday as well. So these two games are going to compete head to head. And if I were to get one, I do think I'm going to get Battlefield. I really do think Battlefield is superior to Call of Duty. And I know a lot of people will probably disagree with me on that. I just think the Conquest multiplayer mode in Battlefield is more fun than something like Domination in Call of Duty, but that's just me. Number six, Sony Santa Monica announced that God of War, arguably one of the best titles on the PlayStation 4, has received a checkerboard 4K resolution, which is a 2160p resolution and 60 frames per second patch on the PS5. So checkerboard, to my understanding, means that it's not actual 4K resolution, but something close to it, like what we saw with Miles Morales on PS5 in the performance ray tracing mode, I believe. So in the performance ray tracing mode in Miles Morales, the game ran at 60 FPS in, I think they referred to it as a 4K upscale fidelity. So it's not native 4K, but it's upscaled to 4K. So I feel like this God of War situation this 2160p checkerboard lingo is probably just the same as Miles Morales, like close to 4K. And to be honest, if you put it next to something that was native 4K, I don't even know if I could tell the difference. But the great point of this announcement comes from the 60 frames per second patch because it's just necessary for this type of game with this speed. And I was watching my youngest brother, David, play God of War at 30 frames on PS4 earlier this year, or I should say the end of 2020. And it just didn't seem up to snuff after playing some PS5 games at 60. 
360. It just seemed a little bit sluggish and slow, and it didn't look to do the game justice. But now, luckily, you can play God of War through at 60 frames in a pretty damn close to 4K resolution, which I think is awesome. I have to give Sony Santa Monica a ton of props for doing this, because as you know, not only are they busy with the next God of War game, which is presumably called Ragnarok, that's set out this year. We'll see about that, though. And an unannounced game as well. I have to give them a lot of props for revisiting this old game and giving it the 60 FPS magic in this patch because it is really important. Once you see it in Miles Morales or Demon Souls or something like that on PS5 and once you go back, it's just not the same. So I do think this 60 frames emphasis on patching old games is really important and I really hope that Bloodborne and Last of Us 2 and Uncharted 4 and even Ratchet and Clank from 2016 and Horizon Zero Dawn, I hope that they go back and make these patches like Sony Santa Monica did. I think it's really important and great to do to help preserve your older but still excellent games in a more modern lens. I do think it's really, really important that Sony puts time and resources and money into this. I'm not sure how expensive it would be, but I do think it's well worth it to retain your incredible IP and your incredible games in this sense. And again, I really, really, really want a Last of Us Part Two 60 frames 4K or checkerboard 4K update because I did recently revisit that game on PS5 and while it still looks and runs smooth at 30, it's just not the same as some of these more recent games that have come out in 4K and 60 FPS. So hopefully we'll find out new information on some additional PS5 patches for PS4 games very, very soon. And I do want to let you guys know, I did recently dabble just for about 30 minutes in this new patch for God of War, just to kind of run around the world and fight some enemies and just see how the patch was working. So I went in a bit and the game is so beautiful now. I actually spent a little time in Alfheim, which is the land of the light and dark elves. Minor spoiler for those of you that haven't beaten God of War, but hopefully that didn't give away too much. And the colors and Alfheim just really exploded off the screen and when I was fighting these light elves and whipping the axe around it just flew and whizzed back right to my hand just so smooth the game just looks so much better now so if you haven't played God of War or you want to replay it I'd say definitely wait until you have your hands on the PS5 version of the game and just go from there I really do think it obviously at this point is the vastly superior and arguably only way you should play the game at this point and it is included on the PS Plus collection as well for PS Plus subscribers that own a PS5, which is really, really awesome. Number seven, IGN.com reported that Embracer Group, who is the parent company of Swedish publisher THQ Nordic, has acquired Gearbox who you guys might know is the developer of the popular Borderlands franchise. And the purchase price was a staggering $1.3 billion. So before we get into the story, just to put that into context for you guys, Insomniac only went for about $230 million when they were purchased by Sony. So about a fifth of the purchase price. And I think this is absolutely insane because I think Insomniac is way more valuable to have than Gearbox. Personally, I do think that you get access to the Resistance games, the Spider-Man games, the Ratchet and Clank games, and Gearbox, while they do dabble in a few different areas, they're mostly known for Borderlands, and I just don't think that Borderlands is as good as these Insomniac franchises. And that's coming from someone who has played most of the Borderlands games. I've played 1, 2, and 3. I didn't really dabble in the Tales from the Borderlands like prequel or whatever the hell that game was, but I do have to say that I never finished Borderlands 3. I platinum the first game back on PS3. I beat Borderlands 2, but the third game, I played it for for maybe about 50% of the way through and I just couldn't finish it. Not because it wasn't good, it's just I felt like I was playing the same game just with like slightly better visuals and crazier looking bosses. So it just didn't really do it for me personally. So I do think that Sony did kind of fleece Insomniac a little bit. I do feel a little bit bad for the major shareholders of Insomniac that 
could have gotten a way bigger payday had they just waited out a little bit. Gearbox is still a good team. It's not like they're an insignificant studio or anything like that. They do have 550 people staff across both their offices in Frisco, Texas and Quebec City as well. And it's important to remember in this announcement that Gearbox CEO Randy Pitchford will remain Gearbox's lead following the acquisition. And Gearbox is now a fully owned subsidiary of Embracer Group. So Pitchford did say that they're just getting started in terms of what games they have planned. So I would definitely expect another Borderlands game. I'd imagine we'll be getting a Borderlands 4 and then a couple of new IPs, hopefully. Hopefully something that isn't a shooter. I think that would be cool. I want to see them do something completely different and maybe even venture into more of a realistic art style. They're so well known for that cartoonish Borderlands art style. I think it would be cool if they went into something more grounded and realistic, but we'll definitely keep our eye on it and see what they can do there. And finally, before we move Move on. I also want to mention that 2K will also still publish the Borderlands games moving forward. So 2K actually came out with a separate announcement following this acquisition announcement where they said that even though the Borderlands games moving forward are going to be under Embracer Group, the Embracer Group THQ Nordic umbrella and THQ Nordic is a major publisher, 2K will still be publishing the Borderlands games. So this is really weird to me. So even though 2K and Gearbox had a solid publisher developer relationship, and I'm sure both sides benefited greatly. They made a lot of money off of the Borderlands games. I think it's weird that now that Gearbox is owned by one of the world's biggest publishers, that biggest publisher isn't publishing the games, which is really weird to me. You would think THQ Nordic would publish the games of a company it owns, but nonetheless, 2K will be doing the publishing for Borderlands games moving forward. So pretty interesting stuff there. Not quite sure how that was negotiated or if there's anything that doesn't meet the eye with that yet. We'll just have to wait and see if any more information comes out on that front. Number eight, Google is ending its first party studio development. So website theverge.com reports that Google is shutting down its internal Stadia development division, and the company is now focused instead on supporting Stadia as a gaming streaming platform by offering games from existing developers rather than by making its own games internally through its first-party teams that existed prior that have since been shut down. So Google's internal first-party studios were located in Los Angeles and Montreal, and we don't know what they were working on, but both teams have been shut down, and it seems that most of all of the employees are staying with Google in other roles, which is great. I think it's good that they didn't just lay off a ton of people. It sounds like most, if not all, of these employees have landed on their feet somewhere new in the company, which is definitely a great thing. So before we get into the rest of this announcement, I do want to mention that Stadia is $9.99, so it's $10 a month for the service. So for 130 bucks, you can get the Chromecast, the Stadia controller, and three months of the service. And the controller alone is $70. So guys, I'm going to be real for a minute. I don't want to come off like I'm shitting on Google Stadia because I do think that what they did was really ambitious and cool. And I do think that in a few years down the line, more people will be streaming video games. But my point at this point in time is who the hell is going to pay for this type of service when Xbox Game Pass exists and you have the opportunity to download your games or you already have a PlayStation for games there and the exclusives. I wouldn't want to pay $10 a month for a service of games I can already play on my existing console and then spend 70 bucks on a Google controller personally. Plus, if you're in an area with poor internet, you can't even play your games since it relies on streaming and you don't have the option to download. So why not have the best of both worlds and own an Xbox or own a PlayStation and be able to stream games from Game Pass or PlayStation Now and then also download them and play them physically or digitally just downloaded your console. I don't think that anyone should be paying $70 for a Google controller when you can just play on Xbox or PlayStation. Although one thing I will give Stadia credit for is that 
Apparently Cyberpunk 2077 is running really well on it, so if I could get hooked up with a free trial of Stadia, I'd probably try that game out there and see how it was rather than wait for the PlayStation 5 version. And I do just think Google was too late to get involved. I do think the big three companies, obviously in Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo, I just think these companies are just too well established and have their own established audiences already. And each of them are getting involved in streaming themselves, so I don't think that Google should have entered the game. Personally, I do think that Google's probably more equipped to do other internet-based things and other software and hardware-related things. I don't think gaming something that really has room for another big player right now. And again, I could be wrong. Later down the line, we might even see that Google is getting back into the streaming game. And who knows, maybe Stadia will still succeed from a platform perspective. And again, so this is the important part of the announcement. Google Stadia still exists. They're still supporting existing games published and developed from outside entities on the Stadia platform, but Google themselves are not making first party games anymore. So that's the announcement, guys, that Stadia will still exist. People can still go out and get it and they can still play on it. But at the end of the day, it's going to be something that won't have exclusive titles. You won't see a Google Stadia exclusive AAA game. It's just not going to happen. Number nine, and this is a wrap up for the week. And it's actually what I'm most excited about. And this announcement to go into is that we did get some new Hollow Knight Silksong details. And this game has been MIA for quite a while now. We haven't heard much out of Team Cherry, the Australian studio, but Game Rant did have a new article go up on Sunday, so the day that this is being recorded, about Hollow Knight Silksong with new details about the game. And for those of you that have been listening to me for a while, you know that I loved Hollow Knight, the first game. I played it and beat it on Switch, actually, since it was released there before it was released on PlayStation. And I think the new one will probably come to Switch and PC first as well, like Blue Fire did recently, but we'll just have to wait and see there. So Hollow Knight Silksong is the second game for from Team Cherry, and I highly recommend the first game, guys. It's really awesome and challenging. It has some really fast speed to it, some really fun 2D combat, fun boss designs that are really challenging and rewarding when you take them down, some amazing platforming segments and special abilities that can make the game really challenging as well. I really, really recommend the first Hollow Knight. I can't say enough good things about it. But Game Rant did report about a week ago that Team Cherry is also early on in development for a new game that we don't know much at all about yet, but it won't be related to Hollow Knight. So this is a whole separate announcement. So before we get into the Silk Song details, I do just briefly want to touch on this, which is really cool. So the co-director of Team Cherry, Ari Gibson, said that in addition to Silk Song, they're working on another game that's going to be different from what players have come to expect from their first games while still retaining some similarities between them. So it sounds like this secret game might be another Metroidvania platformer with some action. We still don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I'm really, really excited and curious about what this game could be at this point in time. But back to Silksong. Game Rant did report that in Hollow Knight Silksong, the movement is supposed to be more acrobatic and combat focused as opposed to the last game. And this is interesting to me because I did think the first game was fairly combat focused in its exploration and movement and maybe even acrobatic. Like I know the little bug, the Hollow Knight you played as in the first game was really quick. He could kind of dash and zoom around. So I'd, I'm excited to see what you can do in this game. Maybe you can do flips in this game now that you're playing as Hornet. And that's a whole nother thing. I don't know if I've mentioned that in the past, but in Hollow Knight Silksong, you're going to be playing as Hornet now. 
instead of the small knight in the first game. And Hornet was actually a boss in the first game. So it's cool that a boss you fought and defeated in the first game, you're actually now going to be playing as in the second game. I think that's really cool. And Team Cherry also clarified to Game Rant that there's going to be over 150 types of enemies to fight in the game. And the challenging gameplay is said to be carried over to the new game from the first game. And it sounds like even the most skilled players at the first game will struggle at times in this one if the statement from Team Cherry is to be believed. A major difference in the games is that the levels in the world in Hollow Knight Silksong will be much more vertical than in the first game. So in the first game where, for those of you that have played it, you know that a lot of the levels and the exploration finds you digging deeper underground into tunnels and secret areas underground. But it sounds like this game will be focused on working up to a peak of some sorts. So maybe as Hornet, we're trying to ascend rather than descend. It would be really cool to like climb a mountain or something rather than go to the depths of Hollow Nest. I think that would be a nice change of pace and probably allow for some more interesting environmental designs as well. While Hollow Knight was amazing, one complaint I had is that some of the environments get a little bit too samey and a lot of that was probably attributed to the fact that almost the entire game took place underground. We also learned about two big gameplay additions in Hollow Knight Silksong, one of which includes a wall jump and another that allows Hornet to pull herself towards enemies with a hook. We also learned that Hornet can also speak and she speaks to NPCs throughout the game, unlike the silent protagonist in the first game. And I do think this should make interactions and the story more interesting, hopefully. And apparently there's also going to be an underwater section of this game. So initially Team Cherry wanted to put an underwater level in the first Hollow Knight, but it wasn't in the final product due to time constraints and some other issues. But it sounds like there's going to be underwater gameplay in Silk Song, which is really exciting. I can't wait to see what they do with that. And finally, they also stated that the game is going to be longer than the first, and there's going to be a bigger focus on side quests in addition to the main storyline. And here we have concrete information. I know I alluded to this earlier, but we do now have concrete information that currently the game is said to be in development for PC and Switch, and there's no mention of a PlayStation or Xbox release yet, but like I said, I imagine the game will come to PC and Switch first and then migrate over to the other two platforms later on since this is what happened with the first game. So my thoughts on all of this, I'm really excited for Hollow Knight Silk Song, and this additional information was really, really welcome. I do think an underwater section sounds really fun, and it sounds like Hornet's going to play a little bit differently from the Hollow Knight character in the first game. I hope they didn't change it too, too much, because I do think that they got the combat and movement in part one really, really, really well, and they just nailed it. So I hope they don't mix it up too, too much with this game with Hornet. And they also said it's going to be even longer than the first game, which is really hard for me to believe. I think that's crazy because I probably got 60 hours or so out of the first game. That was for me beating the story and doing a lot of the optional side bosses and exploration as well. And there were still some points I didn't even get to in the game. Like apparently there's this, the true final boss of Hollow Knight is called Absolute Radiance or something like that. And I only beat the Hollow Knight final boss. I never got to the true final boss. Apparently it's supposed to be like one of the hardest bosses in games and it would have added like another like 30 hours to my playtime. So apparently you can even get like a hundred hours in the first game, which is crazy. But like I said, I, I got my fill after 60 and I do think that even that was insane. Like I only paid $15 for the first game for 60 hours of content. Like that's amazing for an indie game. It's crazy. So Team Cherry is doing some really great things out there in Australia. And I do think this game will be well worth the money. I think it'll be about $40, maybe even in the $25 to $30 range. We'll just have to see. But I definitely think they could get away with charging at least 50 bucks for this, maybe even 60, but I don't think they will. I think that they're going to want to go for a cheaper indie price point to reach that just huge level of success they got with the first game. But I know out there, like if you've played Hollow Knight, I, I'd imagine you'd agree with me and think that 
full price for a game of this magnitude and size is well worth it. But again, I think it's going to be like 40 bucks and I'll happily pay that day one when this game drops. So yeah, I highly recommend the first Hollow Knight for people that like fast 2D combat and exploration, some really fun boss fights as well. Just make sure you use the Wayward Compass charm because otherwise you can't see yourself on the map and it's really easy to get lost. But guys, that's it for episode 33 this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Some more news to go over. I'm still enjoying Control. I imagine that I'll have some Control videos up on the YouTube channel by the end of this week, hopefully, hopefully one or two at least. I definitely want to put some time to those videos so that you guys can enjoy them. And after that, I'll have to figure out what I want to play after Control. I might even go back into like Ghost of Tsushima. I mean, might be fun to play that game again with the PS5 update. We'll just have to wait and see. But again, I, I never really know what I'm going to get into playing until I just decide and go forward with it. But guys, thanks so much for stopping by today. Remember to leave kind written reviews on podcast services, leave a five-star rating. And also remember you can support the show on Patreon starting at just a dollar a month for early ad-free access and the ability to submit a question or comment to the show each week. And finally, remember to check out the YouTube channel for some PlayStation content and some more control videos coming really, really soon. It'd mean a lot to me if you guys subscribe to me there as well. But until next time, guys, thank you so much for stopping by for episode 33 and enjoy the rest of your week and weekend and talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much and take care.